Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So Todd Bowles has the quarterback of his defense in Devin White, but why did they feel the need to draft three more defensive backs? You'll hear from the Bucks' defensive coordinator. I was at the Advent Healthcare Training Center over there Wednesday. We had a chance to talk to the Bucks' defensive coaches and their training staff, including the Bucks' two female full-time assistants, Lori Locust, the assistant defensive line coach, and Merrill Javadifar, the or MJ, the assistant strength coach. You'll hear from Locust and also how players have already responded to her coaching. Fascinating story uh, about Locus and, of course, MJ. And then the Tampa Bay Rays, man, they're already yelling, Mayday, Mayday, after owning the best record in April. The Rays fall to 0-2 this month by losing a doubleheader at Kansas City, 3-2 and 8-2 in the nightcap as uh, they rocked Blake Snell. He's 0-2 since breaking his toe. We've got all that in Booger McFarlane, now part of a two-man booth on Monday Night Football. On this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Verstick. Hey, you know, if you're like me, you're probably tired of paying these high electric bills. You know it's summertime, and that means you're using more energy, right? And your bill can easily be over $300. Well, if you want to save 90 to 95% off your electric bills, listen to me now. May Electric Solar. That's right. They're a locally owned company, and May Electric Solar is the safest solar available and doesn't use high voltage like many of the other companies. And May Electric Solar has a 25-year warranty on all their equipment and labor, and they have a full showroom, and you can see their products, and they are open weekdays. Now, May Electric Solar has been around for 12 years. They've earned a great reputation with their customers and peers. There's many other solar companies imitating them, trying to use their great name, but remember, they don't use subcontractors, and they do not subcontract for any other company in any way. So everyone knows it has to be May all the way. So stop the insanity of these out-of-control electric bills. Start saving now. Call May Electric Solar at 727-819-2862. And right now, you can also receive a 30% tax credit by changing to solar energy through 2019. Call the real May Electric at 727-819-2862. Okay, so this week we have a chance to speak with some of the Bucks assistant coaches. It started with the defensive coaches and their training staff as well, and that meant Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator, had had a chance to really catch up with him since he was hired. And since the draft, of course, they used their first five picks on defensive players, six out of the eight overall, including three defensive backs, and Devin White, the number five overall pick at Mike Linebacker. Bowles Obviously, he's pretty excited about the haul he got on defense, and he needed the players because this was a team that gave up 29 points a game last year. But they have some plans for some of the guys coming back. They expect them to play better. In Devin White, of course, that being the biggest piece, he's going to be your quarterback of the defense. And, you know, remember Bruce Arians came here in large part because he had his quarterback in Jameis Winston and was able to get his defensive staff intact Less talent on that side of the ball, clearly, because they've drafted so so heavily on the offensive side over the past few years. And I think they're really relying on Todd and his staff, which is 
pretty much the staff that he had in Arizona, some guys he had with the New York Jets coming here to Tampa Bay. So all these guys are familiar with each other. They've all worked together. They know what Todd Bowles wants. And, you know, to a man, they were very complimentary of him. But White is going to be the man in the middle. He's going to be the guy that, you know, for years to come will sort of be their quarterback and calling the plays, getting guys lined up, all of that. He's a young player, so there's going to be a bit of a learning curve, but he'll help them with Levante David next to him sort of try to corral some of those players that you see in the NFC South, whether it's Alvin Kamara or Christian McCaffrey of the Carolina Panthers. So you have a number of running backs that they're going to have to take care of. But what was interesting in in talking to Todd, you know, there's many items to sort of clean up and and talk to him about. We have not really discussed Gerald McCoy at all with him. And it became obvious very quickly that there really isn't any discussion. And I had heard this, but it's sort of shocking to hear it again. And it just goes to show you sort of the where the Bucks are with their six-time Pro Bowl player because – we know that Gerald was actually in the building when they hired Bruce Arians, and shortly thereafter they hired Todd Bowles as their defensive coordinator. This goes all the way back to January, early January. And I had heard this, but I, I just we had to ask again, like, you know, did Todd Bowles, what, what sort of communication has he had with Gerald? Uh, is he staying in touch with him now? Does, does Gerald have the playbook? He's not wasn't at the voluntary mini camp. He's not at the voluntary workout program, so he's not doing some of those things. And so, you know, the question is what sort of what he thinks his future is in this defense. And Bowles admitted he goes, "Look, I, I've talked to him when I first got the job. Well, that was three months ago." He says, "I've just I really haven't had any discussions with him since." You know, and basically that. You know, that's a decision that's going to be made by Jason Light and Bruce Arians, which it absolutely will, and there's a big financial component to it with the $13 million. And we've talked about Gerald sort of ad nauseum on this podcast. I've written about his situation. Um, But they're having to go forward as if maybe he's not going to be here. And I just think that that is, to me, that's a big tell. You know, if you have a defensive coordinator who comes into a defense that had given up 29 points per game, does not have a lot of players at any level, right? He's got Vita Vea, a young guy that shows promise and did okay at the end of the season last year. You know, clearly he likes Jason Pierre-Paul, but he'll be switching to a new defense, and he rarely comes to the offseason workouts. You've got Carl Nassib, who showed promise with six and a half sacks, but he'll be a free agent after this year. And then guys like Noah Spence, who might play better in this defense. Levante David's a good player. Don't know about Justin Evans because he's had a turf toe and still unable to practice and do some things on the grass. Your corners, Vernon Hargraves, has missed all of just about the last two seasons. You know, you have rookie corners and Carlton Davis and MJ Stewart. So just not an abundance of talent over there. And yet, you know, Bowles is supposed to be the guy who wants to put this all together. You would think that he would be contacting Gerald McCoy like every day, trying to figure out where are you at, do you have the playbook? Uh, are, you, are you interested in coming in? What kind of shape are you in? Absolutely no communication. And to me, that speaks volumes because I can't imagine, you know, being a coach of a, a new coaching staff going into a team and saying, you know, I'm the new coach of the Rams, but I haven't had any conversations. My defense coordinator has not had any conversations with Aaron Donald. Really? You know what I mean? Like, why? And so – that's, you know, I'm not equating where Aaron Donald is in his career to Joe McCoy, but 
you know, that's the key piece of your defense, the leader, the guy that's been to six Pro Bowls. And to not have any conversation, to not even say, hey, how you doing? Hey, you know, why don't you stop by the office and see what we're up to? You know, look at the defense, where you fit in. Nothing. And so, to me, this is not a question of, of if, it's just when. And I don't know when that will be. We talked about it the other day. I think there'll be a secondary phase of free agency because I think when these teams have their mini camps and they get a chance to see guys on the grass, they're carrying a lot of players that they know are not going to be with them, that have high salaries. There's no need to cut guys. And even the Bucks, who are right up against the cap, won't need to get anybody, you know, get any salary money until they get ready to sign them in July. So, you know, Gerald McCoy is sort of out there dangling. But it was it was a little shocking to hear, you know, Todd Bowles um, have to say what he said about no contact with Gerald. Here's what he had to say. No, I haven't talked to him. Uh, right now he's on our team, and everything else will be decided with Jason and Bruce. You haven't talked to Gerald since you came on? I've talked to him since I came on. That was a while ago. Does he have a playbook? Do you get a sense that he's studying film? Are you able to track that? Is he involved at all? It's voluntary for the people that are here. We coach for the people that aren't here. We wait till they get here. Would you like to see him back? As that decision's above my pay grade. Now, as for the defensive backs, we mentioned that, you know, a year ago they drafted three of them, right? Carlton Davis, MJ Stewart, and Jordan Whitehead, the safety. You know, none of those guys, they, they combined to start 40 games. They had zero turnovers, zero takeaways, I should say, which is shocking that you would play that much football and not actually get an interception or something like that. And they were unable to do so. And so that's, that's probably a big part of why they went back in the draft and, you know, they drafted three more defensive backs. But in talking to, you know, the Bucks' assistant coaches, especially guys like Kevin Ross, who coaches the cornerbacks, and Nick Rapone, who coaches the safeties, you get a better feeling for sort of why they feel it's important to have, you know, extreme depth in the secondary, especially at those cornerback and safety positions. In this defense, all you heard about Todd Bowles from almost every assistant is that, look, it's, he's very multiple. He puts guys in positions that they can play and, and be successful. He doesn't ask them to do too much. They use a lot of players. Um, at times when teams go to four wide receivers, for example, sometimes you'll see as many as seven defensive backs on the field. I mean, this is nothing like people used to the Tampa two with the four down linemen, you know, the three linebackers, four defensive backs. And if you go nickel, two linebackers and five defensive backs – playing zone, it's not going to resemble that at all. Um, it's going to be so far from that, I think people will be shocked. And I think the defensive backs are used in so many different ways, particularly the safeties, that that also is going to going to be special and new to a lot of people too. So they've, they've deliberately wanted to do a couple of things. One, get a little bigger. I think they, they realize that the receivers in this division, whether you're talking about Michael Thomas or Julio Jones – you know, you have some big, long guys that can run, and you need to match up with them. And so they have some guys that can be cover corners but also match up with the size. And then the other thing is acquiring safeties. You know, when you think about the safety position, it's really evolved in the NFL, especially with the rule changes. You don't have sort of a lot of guys that are just that big, powerful downhill safety like a John Lynch, like back in the day Ronnie Lott. You have guys that can cover. You do have some guys that can, you know, lay the wood in the running game. I think 
Jordan Whitehead proved that he can do that. So he's he's a thumper. So you have certain players that are really good inside the box, but they needed some guys that were versatile, um, that can uh, you know that can cover man coverage, that can play in the slot. They're looking for that that nickel corner that can play inside. They they don't know if that's going to be M J Stewart who might move to safety. Um, so you know they went out and they they got guys like Sean Bunting and Jamal Dean from Auburn, who are really good corners. But the guy that uh, they talked a lot about, especially Kevin Ross, uh, talked about him and, and others, is Mike Edwards. And he's, he's the safety from Kentucky, a guy that made a ton of plays, had like nine interceptions the last three seasons there at Kentucky. He also averaged about somewhere around 90 tackles a year. So versatile guy, and it's versatility. You kept hearing this word over and over again about how they want players – who can you know both play the run and also cover and also blitz? I, I think that you know the ability to bring pressure from all angles on the field, even from their the deepest part of the field, like the safety position, is something they really covet. And you know they looked at at guys and and looked for players that were versatile, players that can run, and and this is going to be sort of the hallmark, I think, of of Todd Bowles's team is that you know you you have to sort of recognize that someone could be coming from any angle at any time, whether it's a linebacker, defensive ends, or defensive linemen, uh, corners can come off the edge, safeties can come downhill. They're going to do a lot of attacking, and to do that, you have to have people on the back end to cover receivers and, and cover for the pressure and stuff like that. I'm excited to see just how this is going to look. Now, they haven't had these guys on the grass but for like two days in helmets and shorts. So they'll be, they're willing to tell you, Bowles and others, that they really don't know much about these players except what they've seen on film. They think they have talent. They think that they're learning well, uh, you know, adapting to the new concepts, doing the work in the classroom, able to spit back out you know, sort of what they're teaching them, and it always comes down um, to teaching. But just in general, Steve, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I was impressed. Now, I just met the defensive staff. I'm impressed with the level of – of coaching and experience and confidence that this group has. And the only thing I can equate it to is I really do believe, like with all the coaching staffs they've had since John Gruden left, remember he had that defensive staff that Tony Dungy left them, this might be the best assemblage of, of coaches on a staff that they've had since Dungy and, and slash Gruden were around. I really do believe that. Well, one of the things you've always talked about is Bruce Arians brings swag. He does. And and his assistant coaches bring that as well. I mean, and that's part of the mm-hmm. reason they're with him. And they feed – look, everything feeds off from the top. It does. So that confidence that, you know, that, that it's kind of been missing from the Bucks. I mean, you know, Mike mm-hmm. Smith's a seasoned defensive coordinator, but he doesn't have that – and I don't want to say arrogance because I don't think it's an arrogance, but confidence is the best word for it. That, mm-hmm. you know, that when the coaches are exuding that confidence, it can only help the players. If there's, oh, enough, if there's enough talent on the field, which they believe there is, and obviously they've drafted mm-hmm. some more talent. But basically you've told me that the Bucks are becoming the Rays. So they're versatile <laughs> well, and players can play multiple positions and do multiple it's different things. It's sort of things. like I mean, that. Yeah. It's, it's not a bad analogy, yeah. to be honest with you. Yeah, and the only other they thing I can think of as you were talking is you mentioned that, you know, this is unlike anything you've seen, you know, defensive backs in different spots, linebackers. I'm thinking back to that scene in Varsity Blues when they send out five wide receivers in the final game and the, the people in the stands are kind of, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> it was That's unlike right. anything they'd ever seen before. 
I've never. What are they doing? Yeah, no, I. It, it is very much like a movie, I guess. You could. Uh, we'll see how it turns out. But I mean, they they really do. It's it. They're sort of looking for that. They're looking for, you know, big, strong, athletic guys. You know, I mean, even like you take a guy like D1 Buchanan who came over from the Cardinals who played what they call the moneybacker position. He's a linebacker, and they said he was a linebacker. And we talked to Mike Caldwell, their linebackers coach, says no, he's a linebacker. You know, can he play safety? Yeah, at times absolutely, and sometimes our safeties. You know, if you remember what they did with Tyro Matthew, that guy was never back. He was always up at the line of scrimmage. He was always blitzing. He was always wreaking havoc in the running game. And so that's sort of what their safeties do. You know, obviously you got to have somebody going backwards and, and, and covering the deep middle and things like that. But they really are versatile. And I'll tell you, just, just looking at the coaching staff, it is loaded with former players. Now, I don't – you know, some of the best coaches I've ever been around didn't play in the NFL. You know, Rod Marinelli didn't play in the NFL. You know, Herman Edwards did. Lovey Smith didn't play in the NFL. You know, there were guys that typically most of your coaching staffs around the NFL, they're not all ex-players. And especially today because players make so damn much money, if they're any good at all, that they, you know, the, the idea of spending 100 hours a week coaching football doesn't appeal to everybody. But having said that, if you look at this coaching staff, you know, Larry Foote, we were talking about him before the podcast. I mean, talk about a guy that was a great player at Michigan, played a long time for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, one year, I think, with the Cardinals. Um, you he know, he's the now Lions the outside too, line. I think, too. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, you know, we talked to Cody Grimm, who is, is a new assistant in the NFL. He was at Virginia Tech, played safety for the Bucks. He's now one of their uh, defensive assistants and special team assistants. You know, you have – just, just a Antoine Randall is is his first year as an offensive assistant is going to be part of the staff. Byron uh, Leftwich, you know, Byron Leftwich, right? Another one, Ke- Kevin Ross, who played in the NFL. You can go on and on, but it's it's a pretty impressive damn staff of players that you know see the game from a player's perspective and have been successful as coaches under Bruce Arians. And Arians got a lot of these guys into coaching. Keith Armstrong, who played for Arians at Temple. You know, he's their special teams coordinator. He, he was a, uh, a running back back in the day at Temple. And then, and then you know, Harold Goodwin, Todd Bowles. I mean, Bowles played at Temple for Bruce Arians and has been with him in many different stops along the way in the NFL as well and a head coach with the Jets. So I just think that, you know, from a player's perspective, to have somebody that's been, you know, in the fire in the NFL, college football, been with Bruce a long time, what, what you get from them is they exude a confidence. And that, that's sort of what Dungy's staff, you know, had uh, that, that Gruden inherited. You know, when they, when they spoke, they were just – they were so confident about, you know, had seen everything, had done everything in the NFL, in many cases players. And when they told you to do something, you know, they, they pretty much expected you to do it. And they were good teachers. And I think that's what Bruce has done is – assembled a bunch of guys that know what he wants first and foremost and they're able to teach that and and you know Bowles is an interesting character because he's so laid back like you talk to him he's got sort of this southern twang he's just you know he speaks very deliberately uh, no no wasted syllables at all I mean he's just straight to the point and I could see where that would be endearing to a lot of players simply because you know he looks you in the eye and he has this sort of presence about him he really does like he's a guy you probably wouldn't want to challenge very much he's a big dude 
uh, but he's very serious too, you know. And uh, but he's able he's able to relate sort of exactly what he wants to do. And 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 that's what I mean. Like everybody is, I think, sort of looking at this defense and saying, well, you know, this is they don't have any players. And they all they'll tell you, look, you got to have players. But they think they have players, and that's what's that's what's so important. And that's what Dungey did when he came in here, even as far back as '96. You know, he said, you know, we don't we we'll play with what we got. Like we're okay, you know. And they lost, and they had to get the system down, and they were two and eight at one point. Then they won, you know, five of the last seven, and then the next year they made it to the playoffs. But I, I just think that they think they have enough talent here. It's about developing some of these guys, and they're going to have a lot of young players playing big roles. I mean, I think some of the guys they've drafted, you're going to see on the field an awful lot. So maybe that's not a, maybe that's an indictment against who they had here before. But if you recall, I mean, when they got injured last year in the secondary, that's when they struggled because, you know, you weren't getting much out of Brent Grimes to begin with. Then Hargraves went down in week one. Uh, you had, you know, guys like uh, Ryan Smith. You had Devontae Harris playing. You had Andrew Adams. These guys aren't, you know, Andrew Adams isn't even with the football team. He's with the Lions this year. So they were pulling guys off the street in some cases to start. And I think that's why they feel more confident with – adding to the group that they brought in last year and uh, in moving forward. So uh, the safety position is going to be really interesting because I still don't think they know exactly what's going on with Justin Evans. You know, he was on IR at the end of last year with a toe injury. He's still unable to do stuff on the grass, which would concern me this far into, you know, the off season. If that toe is not really healing, I mean, that's an injury that has ruined some careers and guys like Deion Sanders and others. So we'll have to kind of monitor that a little bit. But um, just very impressed with them. And and very impressed, too. We had an opportunity, and I wrote a story uh, when, you know, B.A., when when they hired two female assistants. It's the first team in the NFL to have two full-time assistant coaches who are female. And that's just who Bruce Arians is. I mean, he's very inclusive in his staff. He's an out-of-the-box thinker. He's got 29 coaches. So he, uh, he did uh, – sort of solicit some ideas about um, some some females that wanted to get into the NFL, people that have earned their way up. And one of those um, was Lori Locust. And, of course, we also had a chance to talk to uh, uh, Mara, Meryl, um, MJ, um, Javadifar, who's uh, the assistant uh, strength and conditioning coach. And we'll play that for you, uh, uh, you know, another date for sure. But I wanted you to have a chance to listen to Lori who uh, was married, actually, to a former player of B.A.'s at Temple. That's how she got to know B.A. and worked her way through kind of a traditional way. She was a player, a semi-pro football player in the female leagues, um, began coaching, you know, went to camps, was with the Baltimore Ravens one summer. And then of late, you know, she was in the the now defunct uh, American Alliance of Football, I guess, and with the Birmingham Iron when she got this current job with the Bucks, and it was about a week or so before that league folded, was doing very, very well up there. Now, they have not put on pads. If you're a defensive line coach, you, people really don't know what you're about until your guys are actually hitting each other and getting going through pain and all that. Um, but so impressed with, with Lori's experience and interested to hear, you know, not only how players are responding to her, but also, you know, kind of the shoulders that she's standing on with a few other coaches that have, have made their way into the NFL and also whether she feels a certain responsibility uh, to kind of be a kind of be a trailblazer 
for other women, and there are many of them, because I went to a forum at the Super Bowl with a bunch of women who want to have careers as coaches in the NFL. So uh, let's play that for you now, our press conference that we had, uh, the first first one we've had as a group with Lori Locust, the assistant defensive coach, line coach of the Buccaneers. Um, you know, I try and do it like a day at a time, you know, um, obviously it's a, it's, it's huge, um, but I try and keep things in perspective. So, um, you know, I, I have my schedule I got to follow, you know, I need to get the installs up to date. I got to, you know, get my head in the book. So keeping it in perspective that way, it's a work day, um, even though, you know, we're in those different phases right now, but obviously I'm thrilled to be here. Um, it's a blessing. It's a, it's an amazing opportunity. But um, everything's been going well, um, and I paid Casey very well for some of the answers that he, <laughs> that he gave you, the nice things he says. But no, it, it's been going very well. I'm very fortunate to be with the organization. How did you break the ice with the guys when you first walked in? Because obviously it's new for you, it's new for mm-hmm. them. Again, you know, I think the tone always gets set for um, coaches when uh, – like, I work with Coach Rogers, right, directly. So he's never treated me as anything but a coach. Um, coach Bowles never has treated me anything but a coach. So does B.A. Um, you know, when you, when you just allow it to be an organic, you know, this is another assistant coach, there's really no ripple. There's no problem with it. I think when it starts to be, like, so separate and so distinct and so different, that's when people start to take notice of it, I and mean, you, you may get a little bit of pushback. But the guys have been great. All the players in our room have been wonderful. So it's, it's just like I've been used to for the last 13 years. You know, I come in to do a job. I'm hoping to do a good one. You see Jameis' comments last week. He said he's going to celebrate with you just like everyone in the locker room. And- yeah. It's going to be a big family atmosphere. It is. It is. And I feel that right away, too. Um, you know, obviously being new to the organization and, and seeing some of the things on film last year, you know, I did a little bit of the same type of watching Casey did. And I feel that energy shift, again, not having a point of reference from last year. But the guys do have a little bit more of a bounce, you know, and it does feel like things are starting to be a little bit cohesive even early on. So I'm excited about it. And I give him a hard time when I see him in the hallway. You know, we're going to be mortal enemies like in a couple of weeks. So, you know, we'll say hello now. But he's a good guy and um, a great leader. And we're looking to, like Casey said, bring up our side of the ball this year, too. How much do you, you know, you were with the AAF, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that opportunity doesn't happen, do you, maybe, maybe things turn out different for you? Uh, obviously, timing is everything, right? Um, you know, at the time when uh, this transition happened for me, you know, I was solid in Birmingham. We had a great team. Our defense was leading uh, the league at that point. Again, a great group of guys. Um, it's just how things sort of played out. You know, I had heard about um, BA's comments at the Women's Forum at the Combine. Um, several of my what I'll call colleagues, you know, kind of reached out to me and said, you need to get your information in front of him. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, good timing for me, but it, it was really difficult leaving them. And then having that outcome happen less than a week later was kind of heartbreaking because of all the people that were left without an opportunity. And that's front office the whole way through the guys. So. Before you got to the NFL, uh, were you a fan of any specific teams or specific coaches <laughs> that you really like, you know, the coaching style? Gotcha. So um, I hate to do math, but um, as of, what, Saturday, um, I have a, a team that I've been a fan of for 50 years. 
Um, I was a Steelers fan. I grew up in Pennsylvania, so 50-year fan as of uh, this weekend. But, um, you know, I've had that question before, you know, do you emulate other coaches, other styles, you know, that you pay attention to? And, you know, I feel like especially for a woman in this position um, or any coach, actually, you have to be genuine and authentic. So um, I love the intensity of Herm Edwards, um, but I like the style, you know, some of the other coaches that I've come in contact with. Obviously, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. BA, I followed, you know, since the Temple days, since we were all there, you know, together. Um, he coached my ex-husband. Um, Coach Rapone um, that's on staff here was my ex-husband's position coach. I know a lot of the guys were play, um, playing at that time. That's how I know Coach Bowles and a couple of the other guys from Temple. So, um, you know, you kind of pick and pull some of the things that you want to incorporate, but you also have to put it in your own style. So that's what I've tried to do. Did you get the opportunity to, to intern with the Ravens during training camp mm -hmm. last summer and spend time with, with Joe Cullen and yeah. the staff? Right. Um, how much of a jump start is that experience heading into this training camp and this opportunity to bust Sure. Um, I think it's huge only because until you actually get into a situation like that, you really don't understand the complexity or like everything that goes into making a particular practice come together or a game time situation. I was fortunate to be with them through two preseason games. So just the amount of work and the amount of people that it takes to make all those moving parts come together, you don't get that kind of perspective unless you're right there. Um, the prep, the hours, all of that, I think that it's, it looks so seamless from the outside. And, you know, we were doing 12 and 13 hour days in Baltimore. It never felt like work, but we were there. Um, Birmingham, we were 15 to 19. So it gave me a perspective to understand, you know, this isn't nine to five. Nobody should ever think it's a nine to five job. And if that's what you're expecting, it's probably not a good fit, you know. But I think just seeing all the coaches and, you know, you always pick up stuff. Coach Cullen, I always told him was my spirit animal because, uh, you know, just the way he teaches and some of the language <laughs> that he uses. Um, but he's a good dude and he's solid fundamentally and that's something I've tried to base my career on is just being very fundamentally sound. So when Casey is doing, you know, some of the installs and, you know, I'm still learning the things as well, um, you know, I'm trying to check for fundamentals at the same time. So I've, I feel like it's a good balance for the guys right now until I get the whole way up to speed and then we'll be able to take it off from there. You know, I feel like um, it would surprise a lot of people. You know, I don't feel like you ever have to come off, you know, super gritty right away. I think it's when it's necessary, you know. So um, I like to think of myself as, you know, being able to motivate, being able to teach. But um, I've always felt that there are coaches that are very super technical and can make all the adjustments in the world, but maybe aren't the motivators, maybe aren't the guy that you're going to follow to the ends of the earth. And then you have the guys who are super motivational, but maybe aren't as good on the fly with making an adjustment. I want to land in the middle. I want to be like 
a little bit of each of them and still be myself and be able to really, you know, put the wins down for the guys, success on and off the field. I mean, I think that that's where it all comes together for me. I know you live in the moment, and we talked about this a little bit. And yep. You have a job to do, and it's kind of where you are. But, I mean, there's a historical significance to, to what you are accomplishing. Right. Is there any, and I've asked African-American head coaches this too, like, do yeah. you feel any sort of, maybe not pressure, but just like the, the ability to succeed and, and, and sort of blaze that, that trail? And if you're successful, especially, mm -hmm. then that would make it, you know, easier for, for yeah, I think it. I think in any position like this, there's that added responsibility of just making sure that you know you're doing things the right way. And you know, I feel that all the time. Sometimes adding all that additional on, you know, it it does get to be a lot. Um, but you know, what I'm trying to do is for anybody, whether it's young women, young men, you know, hard work. Um, hopefully will open the doors for you. Um, young women that are following behind and want to get into this profession, you know, hopefully, you know, the work of like Katie Sowers and, you know, Catherine Smith, I mean, and now myself and MJ, you know, maybe that broadens the path a little bit, you know, and, and, and if we do it the right way, it's going to happen. And I think that that's the responsibility I try and stick to daily. NBA is kind of an innovator. There's not a lot of coaches, obviously, that, that have done this, but mm -hmm. he's also got a swing coach in and Chris Boniel, Bucks have never had a, a kicking specialist coach. Right. Uh, he's bringing a, a retired ref in. Uh, he's doing a lot of different things. Roger Kingdom's in here as yeah. a speed guy. Yep. So he's doing a lot of different things that this organization has never seen and a lot of teams haven't seen. Right, right. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things, what do they say, you know, if you keep doing things the same way and expect a different result, you know, is where you fall flat. So, you know, I look to BA to be able to really get to a heartbeat of an organization and a team, and he is going to put in place things that he sees necessary in order to make everything work together. So by bringing in, you know, maybe different aspects or things people haven't thought of, um, you know, he, he's doing everything that he can to make this a success because that's what we all want. So whoever's going to get the job done, I feel like BA would bring him in. There some added on free uh, agents as well as draft picks, but what role do you specifically play in developing some of the um, returning players to kind of get them to step it up and elevate their game to basically for you guys to be successful this season? Sure. So, um, you know, the roles are going to be continuing to evolve as we go in through the phases, right? So right now, just in classroom, you know, um, I assist Coach Rogers, um, you know, from what we've talked about, possibly, you know, when some of the rookies come in, you know, be more instrumental in getting them up to speed on the playbook if they need additional help. Um, you know, right now uh, I'm using our, you know, phone communication system, you know, to kind of text the guys if we have changes and things. So just being able to kind of round out the communication and then um, whatever Coach Rogers feels is going to be necessary, you know, that's what I'm going to be charged out to do. Mm -hmm. have personal problems, they have wives, girlfriends, families, what sure. have you. Have you found that, that players will come to you maybe with, with certain things that they're not as inclined to maybe talk to their, uh, you know, another coach about? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it's on the comfort level and the connection that you make, right? So, um, you know, I've been, I've been very careful uh, to maintain professional distance in any aspect of my career. Um, so, you know, the guys, I think it's a trust issue. So within the room, um, there's a great amount of trust. And I think that, um, you know, if they had something and they felt that it was something that they couldn't talk to anybody else about, yeah, I feel like they would reach out. And we're always there. Coach Rogers and myself are always there. But you don't know that they specifically would seek me out. 
Um, but yeah, we, um, it's all about trust. So that's what we're building right now. You've heard of such an exclusive group and you mentioned like Katie Sowers, mm -hmm. for instance. I mean, do you, do you reach out to any of those women? Do you guys, do you guys have a group chat or anything like that? Actually, we do. <laughs> Actually, we do. So um, last year, I was fortunate enough to go to an assistant coaching conference in Dallas for uh, NFL assistant coaches that had coached less than three years. And um, that's where I had met Katie and then Jen King. Um, Jen King is an extremely talented up-and-coming coach as well. Um, she was with the Panthers last year. So the three of us have stayed in touch with um, one another. And it's, it's been valuable because I think, um, and I've talked to Sam Rappaport about this as well, um, one of the things that Sam did that was so valuable was that she connected us through the forums. You know, it can be very isolating as a, a woman coach because there are certain things sometimes you want to ask and you want to like kind of get feedback from a peer on. Um, and it's not to say that the guys haven't done it, but the communication and the conversation sometimes that Katie, Jen, and I have have been um, have been a really good kind of push forward. Um, and, and yeah, so we do have that group chat that goes on every once in a while. Has it been a, the, a, you know, maybe the best piece of advice that you've gotten from, from either of them? Yeah, so Katie, um, Katie's another one who truly believes in being authentic, obviously, right? So, um, you know, that's been the messaging all along, and I don't necessarily know that, you know, we weren't doing it at the time, but just to kind of hear her reiterate, you know, her path and what she's been able to accomplish and see that she's been able to be true to herself and her style, I mean, that kind of speaks more than, you know, a text message. But, yeah, just, you know, we're, we're trying to be out here and do a good job. That's it. I'm sorry, say the first part. Barriers, if any, oh. encountered. Um, that's a good question. I don't know that there's barriers. I mean, obviously, you know, I've, I've done this for a really long time. You know, not at this level, you know, but at semi-pro level, you know, um, or at high school level. I knew where all the women bathrooms were and all the visiting high schools because, you know, that was, that was my halftime trip. Or, you know, I knew how to find somewhere, you know, within a facility or talk to, like, a security guard to let me in so that I could change and stuff, you know. I've never asked for accommodation. I would never do that, you know. But I think that that's all changing. I mean, you're talking, like, 13 years ago, you know, and look how far we've come right now. So I think going forward, that's so minimal in comparison to just us being able to be educated and be um, considered for positions like this. I think that's all going to continue to improve. Just really interesting, interesting background for Lori uh, Locust. And, and, of course, we'll be also hearing from MJ uh, probably later this week or next, uh, our interview with her as well. as She brings a lot of sports science medicine and recovery and things like that um, to the assistant, uh, to the strength and conditioning coach. And they're, they're overhauling that whole thing, by the way. they got all new equipment. They're just doing a ton of things. they got, I think, four full-time assistant strength coaches. It's uh, – really a bigger operation that, that BA and the Glazers were able to um, go ahead and, and expand that, that side of the, of the building. And they're going to need it because they got a lot of road trips and a lot of recovery they're going to have to use as well this season. Meanwhile, okay, so what's gone on with the Tampa Bay Rays? they got the worst record in baseball for the month of May, 0-2. In just one day. doubleheader. In one day, and to to by the way, what was heretofore the uh, worst one of the worst teams, the worst team in the American North, League, North swept of, the best North team of in the Miami, League. yeah, North of Miami. I mean, this was, and let me tell you, it was no fluke. Um, you know, they 
First of all, they jumped over the opener, Ryan Stanick. He gave up three runs. Yeah, that's his first that. bad o- outing as an opener this year. He's, this was, his, I think, believe his eighth opening start, maybe seventh. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he's pitched really well in that opening role. He just had a clunker today. You wonder, too, because I guess he had a lot of family and friends there mm-hmm. in the Kansas City mm-hmm. area. You wonder if that was part of it. Well, he pitched um, well the other on Monday night as he opened. He did. He did. So, yeah, same ballpark. Yep. And Jalen Beeks, and, and though. The- Jalen Beeks in game one, though. Kudos to him. So they're down 3 nothing. He comes in. They pull to 3-2, but he pitches basically the entire game and saves the bullpen. Yeah, he did a nice job. I think he he gave up no runs, right? And I think just yep. one one or two hits. Yep. Something like that the rest of the way. I mean, he was lights out. And so that's good to have a guy that can eat up bulk innings uh, and doing it as effectively as he And he's got talent. He's just got to harness it. And uh, that's that's a really good good sign for the Rays to get that. Now, what what's going on with Blake Snell? I want to get your take on this because, you know, we know that, that Snell was on a roll. He had the, you know, the opening day loss, of course, to Justin Verlander, gave up a home run or two, you know, gave up five runs, and then, and then he was lights out. I mean, he was not giving up anything, barely a run, uh, you know, went on a pretty good string there for a while, and then he drops some damn thing on his, on his foot and breaks his toe. His last outing, he, you know, didn't make it out of the fourth inning, got beat, uh, in that one, I think by the Royals too, wasn't it? If I'm not mistaken, I believe so. Yeah, yes. that was that was a Tropicana Field, and then he goes out there and he had he had better stuff. Now he says it, 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 you know, he felt great. He says that the first time he pitched with it, he he blamed his selection of pitches. He said he relied too much on the fastball and the curve. This time he went to the slider, and they battered him around pretty good. I think it's a uh, uh, might have been a career high seven runs that he gave up. Um, didn't get very deep into the game, and they lose eight to two. And then after the game, you know, Snell reiterated that you know, hey, look, I I had three of these stinkers last year. You know, people forget because I wanted such a run. And uh, he says, but I remember them. One was at Yankee Stadium. And he started reeling them off. He just simply tipped his hat a little bit to the Kansas City Royals and said, you know, I I lost my control for a little bit there. Um, but for the most part, they hit some really good pitches and did a nice job of, of squaring up some 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 tough pitches. And they were on fire. I mean, they jumped all over Blake Snell. And that game got on – that escalated quickly against the Royals. Yeah, the question is, is – and, you know, I know what he's saying. He's saying the toe is not affecting him. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is it? And And I don't think we'll ever know. But – you know, th- th- he's not looked like himself the last two games. And he said, look, the first game back, I didn't feel like myself, as you said. But today he said they he felt no pretty endurance. good. Yeah, they had to build him back up, and that was the thing. He wasn't going to go very deep anyway. You can't tell me, though, that that's not disruptive. And you also can't tell me that even though he's maybe not in a ton of pain, it's not he's not got the same set of circumstances as he had before he broke his toe. And even though they don't find, they don't see anything noticeable in his delivery, he's not – you know, favoring something or another or, you know, something that could potentially, because you got to watch that, you could hurt your shoulder or your arm or mm-hmm. something like that if you're not driving off the mound the same way. Um, psychologically, uh, just the interruption of the season, having to build the endurance back, there is something different. And until he starts winning again, everybody, rightfully so, is going to point to, aha, here's where things went south. He's, he, he breaks the toe, and then his next two starts are just not Blake Snell-like. And so he's going to have to right the ship here pretty quick, or we're going to look back at this and say, you know, should they have shut him down? You know, should they have let that thing heal completely? 
Um, did they rush him back too soon? You know, is this going to – are we going to see something develop here as a result of this that's not related to his toe but sort of as a result of his toe? Maybe it's a shoulder or an arm. But the velocity is there. The stuff looks looks like it still, it still will play. I think at times you just got to say, you know, you're going to play 162 games, and the the Rays have really had a lot of breaks go their way to win as many games as they did in April, and now they had a hot a team come out and and jump all over them. And the other thing that I thought was telling Steve was Kevin Kiermaier after the game. You know, you normally in baseball, unlike football, where everything's a crisis, right? If you lose, it's a, you're never going to lose. You're never going to win again. If you win, you could you could run the table and be the Miami Dolphins and 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 win the Super Bowl. But in baseball, you sort of resist the temptation to ride the roller coaster. Even as a beat rider, you can't get crazy about a two-game losing streak or a sweep to the Kansas City Royals or whatever because there's 162 games. You're going to have a lot of two-game losing streaks, especially on the road. But it was interesting that Kiermaier came out and said, look, we weren't, we just weren't ready to play. I mean, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, we we got to have more sense of urgency than that. And it was a dead ball. I thought it was interesting reading the quotes because they're like, well, you know, man, there's no atmosphere. Nobody's here. It's kind of a dead ballpark. It's like, hello, don't you play in the mausoleum known as the Tropicana Field? This is what other teams have been going through for years now <laughs> when they come to St. Pete, you know? Um, but, yeah, they didn't get energized by the visiting crowd, apparently. Well, and, and, it was and their just, schedule's been so choppy, too. It's I mean, been wacky, yeah. You know, so they they played last Wednesday, a day game. Right, right. An off day Thursday, rained out Friday. And mm-hmm. they play Saturday, Sunday in Boston. That's to, right. You go to Kansas City, you play Monday, then you rained out Tuesday and play a traditional doubleheader. The schedule's also been choppy, too. And we know baseball players are creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. You know, and the Wednesday game was supposed to be, a you know, a seven, you know, local time start in Kansas City. And the day before, you move it up to a noon doubleheader. Yeah, you know, and look, I'm not saying that's the reason for it. And it's not an excuse for Blake Snell not pitching and well in that, but... You know, but a two-game losing streak. At the end of the day, you know, I, I was talking to Tommy Leveron, who's a frequent tweeter for us on the podcast. I ran into him at the yeah. watch party on Saturday, and we were talking about this road trip. You know, you'd won the two in a row at Boston, and he says, "What do we have to do this week?" I said, "Well, if you split with Kansas City and you take two out of three of Baltimore, that's a six and three road trip. I'll take that any day of the week." Oh, absolutely, you would. There's nothing to panic about yet. Now. You just got to make Blake, sure that Blake Snell's stuff is what worries, was, worries me more than anything. And I'm not worried at this point, but, you know. And the question is, is, is if it's the toe that's affecting it, and mm-hmm. we don't know. But if it is, is it, is it causing, is it going to be longer to heal because he's pitching, or does pitching not do anything to it? Right. You know, and, but the, that's something only he knows and or the trainers may know. It depends on how right. honest he's being with everybody, too. And I'm sure they're watching him closely to make sure there's no variations in his delivery, that everything looks clean, you know, uh, and looks looks pain free. But you don't know, you know, you don't know if he's if he's telling the truth about how he feels, if he just wants to be out there and compete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, feels like he can help the club. Doesn't yeah. want to go on IR, a long IR stint with rehab in, you know, Port Charlotte or yeah. or someplace like that. Well, and if you're comparing him to last year, too, and he mentioned that, you know, he had, I think there was four games last year he gave up more than, what, two runs or three runs, whatever it was. And most of them were early in the season as well. They were April, they were May, there was a June. You know, it was the back half of the season that he was lights out. You know, and so maybe maybe part of this is just, 
and, and, you know, he's a young pitcher, so I don't think we know the answers to all these questions yet, but maybe some of it is, is as the season goes, he gets better. And, you That's know, true. And, and a break in the season because you missed a start because of the broken toe in this can affect that. And, you know, maybe he's just not in that rhythm yet. You know, I don't know, and, and time will tell. And as, as, you know, he makes his next start, but I think he's probably scheduled to pitch uh, Monday. Monday or Tuesday. I don't remember if they have an off day when they get back. Uh, no, they're playing Monday night. So, um, you know, that'll be his next start because there looks like they're going to do openers Saturday, Sunday in Baltimore. So, do they got Arizona coming here? Is that right? Correct. Yeah, Hold I on. think he says yeah. His next start, his next start will be against Arizona. Yep, I believe at Tropicana Field. So yeah, he's just. I mean, he was and he was very. He was not panicky about it. I mean, he's very calming actually. When you when you listen to his interview, he's he seems extremely together. It's like look. You know, I got to pitch better, and and these things happen, and I had it happen to me last year. And no, no, I feel great. I feel great. And so he kept saying that, and you got to believe him at this point. But it's just kind of been an interruption, and you know, he was in a good groove there for a while, and he had to get out of it with the uh, with the accident. So the one thing we've learned about Blake Snell is he's pretty good at self-assessing himself. He is. You know, mm-hmm. understanding what went wrong in, a, in an outing and what went well too, and and he's pretty forthright with it with the media and everybody else too. So. You know, you have to assume, you know, that he'll figure out how to get back on track and, and get to where he wants to be. And, you know, but a two-game losing streak is going to happen in the season. Oh, sure. They'll have more of those. Yeah. They'll absolutely have more of those. And like and I said, if you, win, have... if you win and can't – look, at the end of the day, if you go 500 on the road – That's good. So, you know, you split with Kansas City and you take two or three of Baltimore, like I said, it's a six and three road trip. Yeah, that's good. And I also think and, – and Kevin Cashman mentioned this too – like. We forget that, you know, you know what they call the worst player in, in the major leagues? A big leaguer. It's kind of like, you know, yep. the guy last in his class at Harvard, they call him lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you tend to forget that, well, dude, this is not a good baseball team. Look, any baseball team. I mean, in college we weren't very good, but there were days where we couldn't explain it, but everybody just fed off of everybody and you just lit a team up that you had no business beating or a pitcher that you had no business beating. And and some days you can't explain that. You know, you can't you, – you just you just take – you do. You take your hat off. Now, I'll say this. Kansas City came out, and they set the tone early. Like, they were more inspired to play for whatever reason. Well, they do what know, the Rays did. They got three first-inning runs in both games. Jumped on them. Yeah, jumped on them early. Absolutely. You know, after the, and, the Rays outscored opponents 29-4 to in March and mm-hmm. April in the first inning, you know, Kansas City comes out and scores three in the first inning of both games. Right, and I think that that's sort of when, you, you know, everybody has a plan to get it in the mouth. I mean, that, that can happen anywhere, anytime in the major leagues, you know, because the worst team in baseball is going to win 60 games. You know, the very worst team is going to win close to 60 games. So, you know, you're going to have days where, you know, the best team loses to, to the worst team in the American League, which is kind of what happened uh, on this day. So we'll see if they can at least uh, salvage a split in this series. You're going to have Charlie Morton. On the mound for the uh, the end of this series, of course, and the Rays will try to to try to salvage the split. Look, they've only lost one series the entire season, so I don't know that it's going to be the Royals will be number two, but we'll see. Charlie Morton's pitched pretty well of late. Also in the news, bum, 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 we finally got a verdict with ABC's Monday Night Football. Booger McFarlane, our own Booger McFarlane, who's done this podcast, and we had a long interview with him last year, of course, and was part of a three-man booth before with Joe Testator and uh, 
Now, can you the, call it a three-man booth when he was on the booger mobile? <laughs> yeah. He wasn't in the booth. He, he wasn't in the booth. A three-man, maybe four if you include Lisa Salters, but it, but he was part of the, I, I mean, what would you call it? You're right. He I wasn't mean, part of the you're booth. You're calling it a three-man booth because it's the three, the three of them were all talking throughout the whole broadcast. I mean, Lisa Salters, the sideline reporter, would come on mm-hmm. when, when they when, had something to report, but Booger was on the whole time with Joe Tessitore and Jason Witten. And Jason wasn't very good, so he went back to playing tight end because yeah. that's what he does best. He wasn't Tony they, Romo, so. Exactly, and that's what they were hoping for, and he just wasn't. So, you know, I, I, see, I saw Booger at the uh, league meetings in Arizona last time I was with him, and, you know, at that point, Witten had decided to go back to Dallas, and so people were coming up to him, and including me, and asking sort of, what do you hear? Like, what you know, are they going to let you? First of all, are they going to put you in a booth and get you off that damn contraption, which just did not work. I don't know. You know, the thought was that there was going to be some unique sort of sideline perspective. Um, it wasn't like a Tony Saragusa thing, but it kind of was. But it was like this contraption. He had all he had every monitor and everything that they had. You know, up in the pre, up in the, the the TV booth, but he was on this this rolling crane you know of, of some kind that actually interfered with people's seats that they paid a lot of money for so they were yelling at him all the time but it did make sense it just was it was unwieldy it wasn't it wasn't what it was billed to be and so they were at least smart enough to move him back up in the booth I think they would have done that anyway but when I talked to Booger at the league's meetings he was like look I don't I don't know what they're gonna do you know like yeah that'd be great but I'm not counting on it he, I think he was kind of anticipating that they probably would try to hire somebody else and look They've been going after, I'm sure, Peyton Manning and, and a lot of different people. Um, but at the end of the day, they decided to stick with Joe and Booger, which is great for Booger. And, um, you know, I, I think he's, he's going to do great. I mean, Booger McFarlane is authentic, and I think that's what you have to be to be a, a really good uh, personality. And that's what that job is. Think of the the, the legacy of Monday Night Football and the, the amount of color analysts that have been in that booth before. Um, including his former coach, John Gruden. So, um, you know, Booger's going to do great. I'm happy for him. I sent him a text. Uh, he was thankful, and I'm looking forward to seeing just uh, how it's going to work with him and Joe. Because him and Joe, I thought, had a really good rapport. You know, I thought that those two, the banter that they had going was really good. Hopefully it stays that way. Hopefully he has a long run with the two of them, and everything is great. And, you know, but I'm happy for him. When you consider that, like, five years ago, he started, you know, doing local radio. Like that was his beginning, and now he's on, he's on Monday night. He's a star of Monday night football, which is an incredible franchise, as you know, and goes back to uh, Howard Cosell and Dandy Don and Frank Gifford and all those guys. So Keith Jackson before that. So it's just been an amazing legacy to be part of, and uh, I know I know he's excited to do it. So good for him. So we'll be back at One Buck Place, as I call it. It's the Advent Healthcare Training Facility. We'll have a chance to talk to the Bucks' offensive coaches as. You heard from some of their defensive coaches and Lori Locust, but we'll talk to uh, Byron Leftwich. You got guys like Ant- Antoine Randall L in his first coaching job. Um, Clyde Christensen, the Bucks quarterbacks coach, in his second stint with Tampa Bay. Of course, he was here with Tony Dungy and his first staff. So, look forward to talking to you about that. You'll hear some interviews as well, and then of course it's Rays against the Royals in the sort of the wrap-up of that four-game series with Charlie Morton on the mound. And remember, folks, we know you have a choice 
of uh, solar companies and, and you want to save some money on your electric bill because this is the time of year where you're going to be lo- using a lot of power with the uh, temperatures heating up. It's hot outside, a lot of air conditioning. Call my friends at May Electric Solar. You're going to get a 25-year warranty on all their equipment and labor. They use only their own uh, employees. They don't use contractors. Stop the insanity of the out-of-control electric bills. Call May Electric Solar at 727-819-2862. And if you do that right now, you get to receive a tax credit of 30% by changing to solar energy through 2019. Call the real May Electric Solar at 727-819-2862. For Steve Ersnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day, everybody. 